Let's talk about panic and fear for a moment together. Think about that together. Um, it is the, a common thing of everyday life. We know that. Um, you know, you, you get word of, of funding cuts. You get word of, of job cuts. Uh, you, in the doctor's office, you can see that funny look in their eye when they're looking over your report. Uh, or maybe there's an assignment or a task that's been handed down to you that now you're given charge of, for which you have very little training, very little understanding, very little experience, and the stakes are high, and you're kind of beginning to sweat just a little bit. Fear, fear, and panic, um, which all then feeds into, leads to, sleepless nights and irritable moods, um, exhaustion, from trying to buckle down and handling it, or despair and depression from giving up, which then leads all the more to uh, maybe even health issues, performance issues, relationship issues. And this is all common. This is all every day. We can all identify with this to some degree or, or another. Is there any cure for that? Any cure, any hope for us fearful, panic-stricken people? Is there anything that can go to the root of our fear, our worry, and concerns? My friends, there is. If you have a Bible, turn with me to now to Matthew chapter 8 where we will learn something more of what the, the cure is for our fear and panic. Matthew chapter 8, that's the first of the books in the New Testament. It's the first of the canonical Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 8, short text, verses 23 through 27. Oftentimes referred to as the calming of the storm. Matthew 8, chapter Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. If you'll follow along in your Bible as I read now the Word of God. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Oh, is that not the question before us? Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, as David says here in Psalm 19, that your word, your commands, your statutes, your precepts and law, your ways are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By them your servant is worn, keeping them there is great reward. Oh, and then the question, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep Back your servant from presumptuous sins. May they not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Oh, that the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, would you be so merciful to us this morning to help us see and hear that those of us here who have some things that we need to be settled in, you would settle us. Those of us who need to be unsettled would be unsettled. That we would live, think, feel, walk in accordance with the truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks uh, since we were in our study here through Matthew, and uh, uh, I find myself just needing to kind of ask this question when we kind of come back to you know this progressive movement through the Gospel of Matthew. Now we're in Matthew 8. I just find myself needing to ask the question, where are we? And uh, maybe you're wondering that too. At this point, as Matthew's Gospel has unfolded, here's where we are. Jesus has shown himself to be through his word, by his spoken word, by his teaching, the Christ. We see that especially so in, in Matthew chapters 5-7, through 7, and what we oftentimes refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So, through word, he has shown himself to be the Christ. And now here in Matthew 8 and following, we see in a series of extraordinary things, he is showing himself to be the Christ, not just through word, but through deed, through these miracles. These extraordinary things that we've already read a few of these in Matthew 8 and studied and talked about them, and now we find yet another one. And in all of this, as he in both, as he is showing himself to be the Christ in word and in deed, he is making it very clear that in fact what he has been saying all along is true that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has arrived. And he is the king. The kingdom has arrived, and in fact he is the king. Now, a few weeks ago, last time we were in this progressive study, it, it, we were looking at the, the text just before this in verses uh, 18 uh, down to 22, looking at the, the cost of following Jesus, or what is referred to sometimes as the cost of discipleship. And we were looking at the fact that there is this material cost, and there is this relational cost, and that we have to, if we're going to follow him, forsake everything and put him absolutely first, absolutely first over everything, forsaking all for the sake of him. Here in this passage, what we're discovering a little bit more of is just who it is that we are following. The prior text had to do with what that looks like, the following. Now we're looking a little bit more, it's being revealed to us a little bit more as to who it is that we are actually following, or if I can put it this way, how it is that we can follow him, and in fact must. Matthew's getting at here, um, in, in unfolding for us the reality and this compressed account of the calming of this storm. It's, it's, it's a miracle, let's be clear on that score. This is not by any stretch an everyday event. You can see that in the response of these disciples there. They are accustomed to what life is like on the Sea of Galilee. Some of them are fishermen. They've been out there a time or two. This is not their first rodeo. And yet, something astonishing and frightening is, is and awe-inspiring is happening here. This calming of the storm is a miracle. And what Matthew wants us to see is that through Jesus' miraculous calming of the storm, we see that we can truly, truly trust Him. 
That's what Matthew's driving at here. Uh, through what we see, we're going to unpack that in a minute, through what we see in Jesus' miraculous calming of the storm, in fact, we really, truly can just throw the whole of ourselves, the whole of our weight, our lives, into trust in Him. Now, how do we see that? How, how does, how does what we're, what, in, in this action, in this event that we see here in this text, uh, as Matthew's recorded it for us, how, how, in fact, does that inform? How, in fact, does that shape our trust? How, how might that fuel and ground a reliance upon and dependence upon this one who has revealed himself to them and to us as the Lord of the storm? How do we see trust shaped and informed uh, in that. Three things, and you see it there in your outline. First, by Jesus is showing something of the identity of this king, the certainty of his reign, and finally, also, the majesty of his ways. So these three things are informing and shaping, driving, grounding, our trust, dependence, reliance, upon him in a deep, profound way, the degree to which we take that in, the identity of this king, the certainty of his reign, and the majesty of his ways. Okay? So let's look at these in, in turn. So first, who is this? Who, in fact, is this there in the boat with those disciples in the midst of this storm? It's a compressed account. I said that already. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you could really... I could only imagine how much more Matthew could have said if he had wanted to. But we, we have what we need, and what we see in this compressed account, short as it is, there are clear um, speaking to, teaching of, revelation of the amazing, astonishing, wondrous dual nature of Jesus. That on the one hand, he is fully man, and on the other hand, he is fully God, no less so one or the other. There's so much that's, that's ordinary about this. But in that we see, and I should say, and in that we see that he is fully man. And what's happening in this, this boat? It's an ordinary journey that day. It starts off, not, it's not so much that, uh, something that's just out of the ordinary that would have made the uh, Galilee Gazette uh, the next day. Uh, there, there's a group of, of guys getting in a, in a boat, a boat that was likely used for fishing there on, on that lake. And in fact, we know something likely about what that boat, in fact, was, was like. And back in 1986, there was a severe drought in the, the region. The Sea of Galilee drops. Some guys found the remains astonishingly well-preserved in the silt and the mud of a fishing boat from this time period right in the very region from which these men left on this, this journey. Uh, it was the construction practices that were used very clearly from that time period. Obviously, it was a commoner's boat because of the gazillion number of repair jobs that have been done on this thing, and it would have held roughly 12 to 15 men. We know something even, so you see, about what this boat was like. It's, it's shaped. It's ordinary. It's just an old boat. Just a daggone old fishing boat. Nothing amazing or extraordinary about it, or Jesus' fatigue. He's had long days, demanding hours, journeying from village to village. The demands of the people, it's taking its toll upon him. We ask, oh my goodness, how can he be asleep in the midst of this storm? Here's how. He's fully manned. And he's fully spent. The man, the God-man, is exhausted. 
and he is asleep there in that boat. He is fully man, and yet at the same time, wondrously so, just as truly he is fully God. Because just as surely as we see not just ordinary things here in this text, we see extraordinary things in this text. In what Jesus does, this exhausted man, when he commands the storm to be stilled, and it is. He shows himself to be fully God. God echoes here at creation itself, showing his power over creation. Power at creation, in fact. If you want to keep your thumb there in Matthew 8, turn with me to the very beginning. The easiest text I could ask you to look up now this morning. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what we see here unfolding, if you keep reading through Genesis and you understand what's happening here in Matthew chapter 8, that as Jesus speaks and brings order to chaos, calm to the depths, to the sea, to the waters, He is doing something that's showing Himself clearly to be fully God, God's power demonstrated at creation. But not just that. Not just his once-for-all sort of power at creation, but as we read a little while ago from Psalm 107, his power over creation. Right? Where his people cry out in terror, longing and in need, and he responds, stilling not just their hearts, but the storm. Who else can do this? Who else can do this? This is not a wizard. This is not a, just, a, just some holy man, some sage, some magician. This is the Lord God Himself in the flesh, in that boat. In that boat. John Chrysostom, the uh, 4th century bishop of Constantinople, the quotes in your quotes and notes here, second one. How did they know He was a man? They could see Him sleeping. He commanded a ship, so why were they so perplexed about His humanity, saying, what manner of man is this? His sleeping showed he was a man. His calming of the seas declared him God. Pretty much sums it up. Remember years ago, many, many moons ago, uh, in October, oh goodness, I don't want to know how many years ago, some friends and I, of mine and I decided we were going to create, uh, craft our own haunted house for some kids in the neighborhood Okay, on, on Halloween night. And so, understand, this is nothing exorbitant. This is nothing extravagant. I mean, we just took some cheesy masks and some sound effects, some soundtracks, and some weird, freaky lighting and some decorations and just all had it set out there at the front door. Yeah, we had the candy, too, to lure them in. Um, and what, was, what we were amazed by was the response of these kids. I mean, they, they, would, they would come, they would see, and, and the younger they were, they just they're running across into the dark, screaming in terror. And we're like, just like, just thinking to ourselves every time this happened and saying this to one another, oh my God, this is nuts. If they only knew, because we'd gone through the preparations, we know who's behind the mask, we know who set all this up, and we're like, if they only knew, if they could only see, they wouldn't go screaming into the night in terror. My friends, if we only knew, if we could only see clearly what it is 
that frightens us and scares us so, and who it is who is in the boat with us in that moment. We wouldn't go screaming out into the night in terror either. If we could only see, if we could only know that, and let that settle into our hearts. So if I can put it this way, two things. Implications of this text. Just this point. The identity of Jesus. The identity of this king. If I can put it this way, he, he has it. He has it. He's got it. He's in control. He's got us. If you pardon the expression, he can cover the spread. There's no sweat on his upper lip. Now, I'm not saying by that, um, don't worry, be happy. I'm not saying by that, que sera, sera. I'm not saying by that, oh, don't make preparations, don't, you know, just ignore the danger and what harm could come, and don't, you know, no, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is take your precautions, be prepared, but without a spirit of fear and worry and terror, because we know who has it, who has us. Which leads me to the second thing, and that is not only does he has it, he gets it. He knows. He understands. He knows, my friends, what it is to be tossed around in a storm-tossed boat. He knows what it is to feel the temptations towards the fright and the anxiety and the worry and the terror. He knows what it is to be tempted towards that. He's got it, and he knows it. He gets it. He gets us. He has it, and he gets it. I just, I just wonder if I could just, if we could just sit across the table, just one from another, right now, and just talk. And you could look me in the eye, and I could look you in the eye, and we could just dialogue about this. What if you? What if I actually believe this? What would that do? As you look out on the landscape of your life and the fears that are out there, the bogeymans, the monsters out there that keep you up at night, what, what would it look like if I believe this? What would it look like if you believe this? The identity of this king. Secondly, let's move on to the next point. The calming of this storm reveals the identity of this king gives us ground to trust him. I think I would say certainly, rather, that the, it also reveals something of the certainty of his reign. Not just the identity of this king, but the certainty of his reign. Let me explain what I mean by, by that. Jesus was given a mission. The Son of God was given a mission by the Father. Uh, at the very beginning, if I can put it that way, um, to reclaim everything that is his. Which, by the way, is everything. To reclaim, to take back that which the usurper, the pretender, Satan, had tried to take hold of. Jesus was sent on a mission to reclaim that. The kingdom of God coming. The usurper, the, 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 the treacherous one, pushed out. He's come to reclaim. He's come to redeem. To reclaim and redeem a people for himself. To win them out. To bring them out of bondage and enslavement their sin. That is his mission, to reclaim and to redeem. And we see something of the origin of that mission and the 
first statement of that mission, if you can take, if you go back with me again to Genesis, but just two chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first statement of the gospel. It's proclaimed there in Genesis 3, verse 15, in the context of the curses being pronounced in the wake of the fall. And in the context of what the Lord is saying to the serpent, in verse 15 we read this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the rest of history is the unfolding of that promise being made that declaration being made and determined at the very beginning of everything that he, the serpent, the enemy, Satan, will be crushed even as he wounds the Savior who will be coming to crush him and now has. Okay, so that's the mission. Here's the question. Is it possible for that plan, that promise, to be stopped? Is it possible for that Savior to be snuffed out before he's even had an opportunity to carry out the work that he's been sent to do? There have been forces marshaled, harnessed against him, again, from the beginning. You see it with Cain's killing Abel. You, you see it with Pharaoh's slaughter of the Hebrew children. You see it with the corruption, corrupting influences of the Canaanites and the um, exile, the Assyrian exile, and Babylonian exile. And now even as recently in the book of Matthew, just he's already spoken of Herod, the arrival of the king, Herod's slaughter of the innocents, as it's oftentimes referred to. And, and just a few chapters later is recorded for us, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Forces being marshaled against the unfolding, the outworking of this plan. And now we see, on this day, at this moment, this storm. And it raises the question, is it possible for that plan to be thwarted, that Savior to be snuffed out before He's had an opportunity to carry out His work? Well, let's read it. Verses 23 through 24. And when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. He was asleep. This is a seismos. That's the Greek word. You may recognize that. It's in relation to our English words. It refers to a shaking. A shaking that's taking place there in this, in this storm. For the Hebrew mind, for the, the Jewish readers, for the disciples there, because they're all Jewish men, for them the storm, the sea, represents chaos. It represents all through the Old Testament, this, this concept, this idea, uh, the, the background of uncontrollable, hostile forces. And, and in fact, just the topography of that part of the world lends itself towards storms like this because of the, 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 the ravines cut between the cliffs there on the west side and the Golan Heights over there on the, the east side. You have storms, these, these tempests which just come down so fast and so terribly upon the sea of that, between the, the surface of that sea still today. There may be, though, more to this storm than just meteorology. There may be more going on than just that. 
I hope to talk about that just a little bit next week. But just now thinking about it, back to our question. Is it possible for this plan, the Lord's plan to redeem and to, re to reclaim all that is His, is it possible for that plan to be thwarted? Is it possible for this Savior sent to be snuffed out before He can begin His work? No! Did you get that? No. Absolutely, emphatically, not. Here we see not just the identity of the king, but the certainty of his reign. The outcome is secured and sure. Absolutely. And you know, it helps. It helps to know the outcome of something when you're watching it unfold, doesn't it? It's very common. Just, just get very common, almost ridiculous example here. I think it's the only time I've ever done this, but actually watched a rerun, a rebroadcast of a football game that I, from beginning to end that I already knew the outcome of. It's some years ago, uh, ESPN, just a variety of reasons, was, was forced into rebroadcasting a game between Virginia Tech and Clemson from the year that they had their net, the Hokies, that is, had their, because why would I talk about the Tigers, right? Um, for, they, that they uh, had their national championship run. And I'm watching this game down in our basement of Southern Peoria. I'm watching, watching this game unfold. And I'm watching it's the first half. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, this isn't going very well. I mean, they, they, they hardly, I mean, this is not, this, I don't see how they're going to win. I mean, this is, they're, they're not really playing well at all. And honestly, at halftime, I actually got up off the couch, went upstairs, found my championship mug with all the scores written down on the side from each game. And then saw, yes, Tech wins 31 to 11. It's like, oh, thank goodness. And I sit down and now I can watch the second half. I said it was ridiculous. I know. Um, it helps though, right? It helps to know the outcome of something when you're watching it unfold. Now, what about when you're in the middle of it? Oh my goodness, can you imagine playing in a game like that? When you know you're going to win 31 to 11? What, 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 what difference it makes, not when you're, just when you're watching the thing unfold, but when you're living the thing as it un, it's unfolding? You know, earlier I mentioned the cost of discipleship. That's the text that you know, we were looking at a few weeks ago. It's right before the one we're looking at here this morning. The cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, this material cost, the relational cost, the absolute necessity of forsaking everything in order to follow him, and the reasonable question that then comes immediately after you're given that charge and that calling is this. What will I be left with? What will I have after I'm given up everything? And the answer is everything and better. After we've given up everything, forsaken all for Him, He says, in the end, you're going to have everything and better. Which means we don't need to play it safe. We don't need to hold anything back. We can go full bore, full steam ahead in following Him. This is tied to the certainty of His reign, the certainty of the outcome. Some of you have heard me say a time or two already. I'm going to say it again. For the Christian, we need no bucket list. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. 
for the Christian to have a bucket list. This, this thing you're obsessed with, this place you've got to go visit, because you know you only go around once. What? Who says that? How biblical is that inference, that statement? Not at all. We go around once for a little, little bit. And then it's on, you know, eternity, infinity from there. So this, this place you're set on visiting, that life will not be complete if I don't get to see that, if I don't get to have that, if I don't experience that. The best of whatever that is, is but a glimmer of a shadow of a reflection of an echo of what it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So what that means is, chuck the list, don't play it safe, let's go and follow him, forsaking all because of the certainty of his reign. We know how it turns out. He has declared and made it so. The identity of this king, the certainty of his reign, impels us, fuels us to trust him, to follow him with all that we are. Lastly, not just the identity of the king and the certainty of his reign, but the majesty of his ways. Any one of these would be enough. Any one of these would be enough. At least it should be. Should be enough for us. But we have a third thing. The majesty of his ways also impel, encourage, fuel, ground our trust. We see it in two ways. We see um, evidences of, of the Lord's providence here and evidence of the Lord's graciousness here. Now by his providence, you may be wondering, what is, what is that? Let me just give you a quick um, summary definition. It's found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's another catechism from many, many moons ago. Uh, from the, the era of the Reformation, it reads like this. So the question is, what are the, wor the what are the works God's works of providence? And the answer is, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. All right, you see that here in, in what's playing out here in this event is recorded for us. It, we have a, a promise. A promise that's being made to us. And the promise, by the way, is not you'll never go through a storm. Ask the guys who got off the boat if following Jesus means you'll never go through a storm with him. No. So the promise is not we will never go through storms in following Jesus. The promise, rather, is he is with us. With us in that storm. And coupled with that, there is always purpose in that storm. There's no, no such thing as random haphazardness or chance in the life of the believer, in the life of one who is following Jesus, this one who is there in the boat with us. And now you might even wonder, and I, I, I can't speak exhaustively to this, it's impossible to do so, but what might, what might have been some of the purposes that Jesus has in mind for allowing the disciples to go through this, this terrifying experience there on the Sea of Galilee? Well, if nothing else, can't we at least say this? That had they not gone through that, they would then have been without this revelation of Jesus as the Lord of the storm? They would never have had that had they not gone through the storm. And by the way, that's a, that then is a gift to them. And these years later, 
That's a gift to us. His purpose is unfolding. His plan is unfolding so that we can see this. He is the Lord of the storm. So that's the, His providence on display here. But I would add this, His graciousness. Oh, goodness, His graciousness to us. His patience, His mercy, His kindness here. The, the, the response of the disciples, how, how well do they do here? You know, on a pass-fail grade scale. Even on a curve. <laughs> Um, verse okay, so the the storm is the seismos is setting in. Verse twenty five, and they went and woke him, saying, "Save us, Lord, we are perishing." There's some beautiful tension in what they're saying here. They know enough to go to him, but they're going to him in a panic stricken state, which is really interesting. The collision of those two things. And so you have to we have to understand it, and you can see this in how Jesus then addresses them. It's not that they come with no faith, right? That can't be. But clearly they're not coming with great, strong faith either. They're coming, as Jesus says, with little faith. Which, by the way, that does not mean in terms of quantity. That's quality. Little in terms of quality of faith. This is an um, ineffective faith. It's a defective faith. It's a deficient faith. It's the kind of thing, you know, ineffective, defective, deficient. It's the kind of thing that you would hope that you had the receipt for so you could take it back to the store and exchange it because it's not doing you much good. It's just barely what it ought to be. It's broken. And that's what the disciples have. And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond? Thank goodness, not as I would have. Uh, verses 26 and 27. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? I would have just unloaded on them. You idiots. How, how slow are you of heart? How long is it going to take? Fine, I'm done. You figure it out yourself. And just ride it out. See what happens. You just say something, the harshest thing, and do nothing. He doesn't do that. But nor does he just say nothing, like the passive male. He doesn't just say nothing, and then just, oh, whatever, just storm, and, and then go back to sleep. He, recognizing both areas of need, he moves in and addresses both areas of need. He recognizes their, their spiritual need, their heart's need, and he asks this question, a question he knows the answer to. It's not for his benefit he's asking the question, it's for theirs, to draw them out. And then also, for, so for the sake of their spiritual well-being and their physical safety, he stills the storm. And in this, we see uh, his, the majesty of his ways, of his providence and his graciousness. And those things are still in play today. He hasn't changed. The providence of his ways, the graciousness of his ways. I mean, again, just thinking that over the landscape of our lives, whatever the boogeyman is, whatever keeps you up at night, whatever the monsters are, whatever the, the causes of, of your, your, your terror and your panic and your anxiety and mine, we need to know, we can know, that without exception, he is working all things all things, even that thing, 
all things for His glory and our good. Somehow. Somehow. We can know that. We can also know this, of His graciousness. Of His graciousness, of His goodness, of His kindness, of His mercy. You just think of the, the stark contrast in my life and in your life between everything I deserve and what I receive. Between yours and my, our unfaithfulness, excuse me, our faithlessness to Him and His astonishing but never shaking faithfulness to us. And that holds. That holds in it all, in every storm. And I wonder, again, if we could sit across the table from one another and just talk. What would it look like if you and I believed that? What would it look like? I'm running over. Um, at the root, here wrapping this up, at the root of our fear, at the root of our terror, at the root of our worry and anxiety, what do we find? What's down there, a few feet down? Loss of control. Or a feeling, more accurately, a feeling that things are out of control. right? And if it's not in mine, it must be completely out of so then what am I going to do? I'm going to, it's this combination, this crazy combination of, of panic and fear and worry and trying to seize control, grab hold of the wheel, exert all my influence and power and make things happen because I'm scared spitless. And it's coming out. It's coming out in all kinds of different ways. But how does that play out, right? How does that really play out? How, 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 how does that how well does that go when we take that approach? I mean, just, just in a few weeks, no few of us, on a Tuesday night, we're going to be sitting watching the television election results and returns, and we're going to be looking at these maps. And it's going to be, there are going to be states turning either lots of blue or lots of red, right? And we're going to be sitting there, and some of us are going to be screaming at the TV, turn, turn, you know, whatever the color is. Turn, as though from the comforts of your living room you could do that. Or, thinking of an athletic imagery, um, you, you think in terms of, of, in the bowling alley, the, bowl, the, the, bowl, the ball going down the, the alley, or, or on, on the golf course, the ball being hit along in, in the uh, putting area, or on the green, or, or maybe on the football field, the place kicker, and you're watching that ball sail through the air, or the baseball Diamond, the, the hitter's watching the ball. It's going right down, you know, the edge of the left or the right. And the viewer or the athlete, either one, is going like this. Like their body is contorting, right, to try and make that move. And, and maybe even crying out, no, 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 not that way, that way, that way, that way, that, that way. And when you're on film doing that, like I just did, you look ridiculous. And how, how really, how much influence are you actually exerting? How much power and control do we actually have when we're trying to seize it? None! My good, but here's the good news to my fellow contortionists and control freaks. We don't have to pretend that we can. We don't have to reach out and grab for that which is not ours. Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. 
and has made all that abundantly clear, if nothing else, this event is recorded for us here in Matthew 8, and we really can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, it is, is helpful to try and envision this, try and envision what was happening there, uh, there on that sea in that boat, uh, to, to see the clouds gathering, to hear the wind picking up, the waves beginning to smack up against the hull, uh, things beginning to pick up, and uh, it's now not just a, a little breeze, it's now a storm, and not just a storm, but a tempest. And, and it's not just curiosity and concern, but full-on panic and terror. And it's helpful to, to, be, to have our imaginations uh, running out in those directions and to be impressed with, oh my goodness, and then Jesus says this, and then he, he, he does this. And at the same time, we can imagine that until the cows come home, but we need you to impress these realities in our hearts. To enable us to live it out. Our hearts are stubborn, unbelieving hearts. We may walk out of here, every single one of us, convinced that this happened. Convinced of your identity and the certainty and the majesty, and yet completely incapable of walking that out. So we are asking for your mercy to us, O Lord of the storm, to enable us to, to trust you and to do so in a way that defies our fears and worries, but is completely in line with your power and goodness. Pray this in your name. Amen. If our ushers would now come forward, we're going to, uh, towards the end here of our time of worship, responding to our Lord's generosity and kindness and care, um, we're going to be taking up the collection of the tithes and offerings. There's a Short text here I want to read to you here from Luke chapter 12. makes reference to the heart. The heart, the biblical understanding, being the very center of our being. Our, our mind, the will, the emotions. And what's worth noting is how the heart is reflected in that which we prize and treasure. Luke 12, verse 3. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's give with that in mind.